thank you all so much for coming to this uh, Daily Record Politics podcast. And we're going to be talking this morning about the 20th anniversary of the Scottish Parliament. And I cannot quite believe it's been 20 years. (laughs) Um, I was just remembering myself when I... uh, When the first... Parliament started, I was working at the Sunday Herald and I interviewed all the government ministers, all the female government ministers in the new cabinet, including Wendy, and she said 6,500 words in 45 minutes. So I think we're going to cover a lot down this morning. So that's my one of my first guests, that's Wendy Alexander, um, who was MSP for Paisley North, 1999-2011. And she was really in with the bricks with the Parliament as Donald Dewar's special advisor when he was Secretary of State for Scotland, so a great person to give insight into the, the Parliament's um, early days and later. My second guest is Annabel Goldie. Now, Baroness Goldie, I didn't check the protocol. I hope I got that correct way of addressing you. Is that correct? Well, I'm still just Bella to the intimate. <laughs> <laughs> Bella from the block is here with us um, today. Um, she was a MSP for West of Scotland from 1999 to 2016 and the Conservative Party leader from 2005 to 2011. And my third guest is Kevin Pringle, who has never been an MSP. He's always had a proper job. Um, he was uh, uh, in the run-up to the Scottish Parliament. He was the SNP's Director of Communications. Uh, in 2007, he became Alex Salmon's Special Advisor and then the communications director for the SNP. And he's uh, currently uh, at the communications company Charlotte Street Partners. So fantastic range of people to to talk about the Scottish Parliament here. And I promise everyone that I hope that will be the last um, kind of fact pack with dates and, you know, science bit that we will uh, be covering today. So just all jump in. This is a chat. It's a trip down memory lane. So... What do we all remember about the the build-up to the Scottish Parliament, the first campaign, the personal choices you actually all made to get involved with that? Who's going first? Wendy. I mean, you were involved, you know... I mean, I wouldn't like to say it's all your fault, but I mean... <laughs> you, you know, you shaped the whole thing. Yeah, I think... Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I have now done a number of these programmes, and, and partly because I'm not active in politics these days, but... Um, Really to recall, I think, the role of Donald Dewar, which was, he was a special man in in history, because if you say the Parliament, uh, when it took over in in 99, Donald was, was that unusual thing of an individual who was quintessentially Scottish and really committed to a Scottish Parliament, and very much of the Labour Party as well too. And so he'd taken quite a brave decision in 1988 to take the Labour Party into what was the Constitutional Convention. He said uh, we needed to, Scotland needed to learn to live dangerously for a while. And I look back thinking we do still need to live dangerously for a while. And then he was invited by Tony Blair to come back into the Scotland brief in 97 and spent those couple of years getting the Parliament up and running. Of course, it was highly controversial that we had a referendum at the time, but the referendum, of course, was decisive, yeah. unlike perhaps the uh, independence referendum or the Brexit referendum, and therefore it did really establish the settled will. Yeah. And then we had the Parliament, and Donald indeed became First first Minister in, in 99. Annabelle, what was, your, what was your situation? What were your thoughts about the establishment of the Parliament? I think they were personal, and obviously... Um, party political sentiments because unlike um, 
um, the Labour Party, the Conservatives, had reservations about devolution. Um, not that they thought it was a very bad idea, they just thought that it could lead to strains and possibly, I have to say, Kevin, perhaps give the SNP a platform that it might not otherwise get. And uh, how useful is hindsight? <laughs> well, it's always good. <laughs> but I do remember, Anna, that um, personally I was very excited, change of career for me. But also, interestingly, when you're talking about the referendum result, you know, my recollection is that nobody, nobody really disputed, doubted or um, was of a view you could do anything but accept that referendum result. Mm-hmm. And the Conservatives said, look, <coughs> line and yes. sand, we may have opposed this, but now Scotland has spoken. We go in there and we want to make the Parliament you know, work. Mm-hmm. And we... On a on a political note, um, I was excited. I you know here was I fighting in an election for the Scottish Parliament, um, and uh, a huge sense of um, anticipation. The Conservatives had been in a big dark hole from 1997, trying to climb up the slippery sides of it, and um, here was a possibility we might re-emerge with some kind of political uh, grouping. But I also remember. I don't know if Kevin and, and Wendy feel this. Do you know, there was a sense of history. Even I felt something is happening in Scotland that is huge. And we are part of it. Yeah. Yes. We are part of it. And what a massive privilege that is, you know, on a purely personal level. Yeah, of course. And I don't know about you. You were talking about Donald Dewar, Wendy. I still remember the opening of the Parliament by the Queen. And there is a... F- image etched in my mind of Donald grinning all day long this grin never left his face marching beside the Queen proud, happy the Queen happy, Queen wearing a marvellous outfit of green she was a thistle, are you allowed to say that now, don't forget that she was dressed like a thistle and I interviewed the lady that that made that outfit for her, which was a delight she came from Inverness, the lady that made it and and the Queen looked fantastic I just remember thinking you know, for Donald what a moment this is in your life, you yes. know, the culmination of so many things that you have fought to achieve. Yeah. And I have to say, putting party politics to one side, I really think the Parliament got off to a cracking start with Donald as First Minister. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Kevin, you, you were in a different position. You were in the SNP's office in Charlotte Street and then suddenly moved to Parliament. How was that? It was amazing. Um, when I started working for the SNP, you, you were kind enough not to mention it, but in 1989, for a full <laughs> decade uh, before the, the Parliament this was came a, along. A school secondment, was it? It was work experience. I'd like to say it was child labour. I could be cruel and point out that this, the Scottish Labour Party had a research officer called Wendy Alexander at that same time. The journalist always used to tell me that the Labour had this tremendously intelligent researcher called Wendy Alexander, and I used to think, I wish we had one of them as well. <laughs> Uh, it was, oh it, I think the, f- what was interesting going through the 1990s is that when I started in 89, some people were still looking back to the previous referendum. Right. You know, some of the, you know, perhaps kind of old timers, if you like, within the SNP were looking back the way what had gone wrong and, 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 and the procedural flaws and all the rest of it of that referendum. But increasingly, people were looking forward as we got into the next decade at the fact that it looked like a parliament was coming. It was just a question of time. There was a false start in the 1992 election when I think generally you know, people thought that Labour were likely to get elected then and it looked like it was going to happen. It was a false start. And then we all thought there was maybe another false start in the mid-90s when the decision was taken by Tony Blair to put the issue to a referendum, which was a hugely controversial thing at the time. But I think Wendy and Annabelle are right in retrospect to absolutely 
politically entrenched the position yeah. of the, the parliament. Mm. There's obviously yeah. lots of debates about, you yeah. know, can you mm -hmm. within our system in the EU constitutionally entrench? Not really would appear to be the answer, but certainly politically entrench it. And I think another thing that's quite interesting in terms of the mechanics, which is another element, I think, where all credit goes to Donald Dewar, is that the, the system of devolution was very different uh, for the, the, the parliament compared to the proposal you know, back in the previous referendum in 79, whereby the functions to be reserved to Westminster were the ones to be defined, you know, to be literally written down on a list in Schedule 5 of the Scotland Act, and everything else was automatically devolved. And that's quite interesting now, because when we look at issues like climate change, massively important, massively topical at the present time, when new governmental functions, areas of legislation came along that hadn't actually been if you like, fully thought of, you know, when the Scotland Act was being written, then if they're not written down in Schedule 5, you know, that becomes a, a devolved function. So I think the, 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 the system, the structure of devolution was sufficiently flexible to grow and develop as Scotland grew and developed and indeed as the world, you know, grew and developed in different, uh, you know, policy issues came along as well. So we're, we're 20 years on, but I think what's interesting is it's it's grown over that period. It's not just set in stone in yeah, terms of Yeah, it's matured. The and, and as Annabel said, did, did the SNP see this as a, a, a platform that they could very much make something of, a new way to to interact really with, with Scotland? Well, absolutely. You know, again, I go back to when I first started at SNP, there were four members of parliament, one through a, a by-election, so three had been elected at the previous general election and one member of the European Parliament and a local authority or so, and that was about it. Yikes, that had, that's it. That was it. So when the Parliament came along in 1999, I think it was the case that the SNP got more parliamentarians elected in a single day <coughs> on that day than we had had elected collectively in our entire it was history. 35, 35, yeah, it was 35. So it was more than all added together through all the years that had ever come before. So that was that was an amazing step change. So from becoming a party that over the course of the 80s and into the 90s had been the opposition to the opposition. Mm. You know, increasingly the SNP had kind of focused on being the opposition to the Labour Party a opposition in I'm, Scotland I'm, at Anna, that, that very, time. I'm very encouraged by this. You see, there with the SNP, as Kevin is saying, on the cusp, with 35. You're just Ruth Davidson with 31. Who knows? <laughs> well, 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 I was going to say that. I think that one of the things that Annabelle kind of hinted at, and if you go back to, it, you know, with the perspective of 20 years, how is it different? One of the things was the number of women elected. Yes, and Annabelle being the first leader, yes. of woman leader of a party, mm, and yes. now goodness, they're Ted a penny. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that in those 10 years of preparation the convention had thought about was how do we try and get equal numbers of men and women? And we actually thought in government about enshrining it. We thought we can't force parties to do it. But nevertheless, that first parliament didn't feel like an old boys club because there was, I think we had 37% women in the first parliament, which was at that time the second highest in the world. Mm -hmm. And it meant things. Like in the Labour Party, we did have equal numbers, 28 mm -hmm. women in the Labour group. But then it meant Annabelle emerged as the leader of, of, mm -hmm. of the Conservative Party. And then, of course, we've had a period where we've had, you know, Ruth and we had Kez and, you know, Joanne, myself did it for a while. Absolutely, and in, yeah. in, indeed now, Nicola as, as, as First Minister. That... That is one of the hopes that I think has been fulfilled. Realized, yeah. And I think one of the other hopes, coming back to Anvil's talking about the incredibly 
moving nature of the opening day. And people tend to say, oh, politicians are all the same. One of the ways in which the parliament was different was it was an it, it, it was an intensely Scottish and very democratic experience. So there we were walking from Parliament Hall that had, you know, been the home of Scottish law to the we were squatting in the, <laughs> the assembly, Church, Church of Scotland yeah. Assembly Hall. <laughs> and then you had a ceremony which I don't think anybody cries at state openings of parliament, but when you had Sheena Wellington sing a man's a man for all that, it was intensely democratic. Everybody was crying. Exactly. So it did speak something. And then, you know, Donald made a speech about there being a new voice in the land. The Queen, as, as Annabelle has said, was, you know, very empathetic to this different tone in a new voice. And that accessibility that it's easy to get to, that people can. Visit, and that's true both for the representatives. I mean, in the Labour Party, there had only been 10 Labour women members of the Westminster Parliament, and that was because it was so difficult to combine mm-hmm. it with family life and as well as just pure discrimination, but just it was hard. So there are lots of ways in which we now just take for granted in which the Parliament is different and of Scotland. Jura's mm-hmm. death was a terrible blow, though, I mean, to come so early on in the Parliament, wasn't it? Very sad. Yes, I mean, I'll let sad. Wendy speak, no, but I remember no. I had a huge affection for Donald Dewar. I, I liked him immensely, and I and he him. liked you enormously too. Well, you know, they were counting for taste, but there you go. Uh, but I had a huge respect for him as a political um, operator, and I remember it was a sense of shock because I think it was his um, media chap who phoned me actually to David Whitten. Yes. David Whitten to say how serious his condition was, and I felt I was shocked, absolutely devastated. I mean, there was a particular poignancy about how he died. I mean, he chaired a Scottish cabinet meeting. He slipped in the steps, hit his head. He was, of course, on warfarin because he'd had um, a heart operation. Mm. There was a deep guilt on behalf of all of us, but had he come back to work too soon? He then goes straight into the office, doesn't go to the hospital, is in work, mm. feels unwell, and 24 hours later mm. is declared. That, that was incredibly sad. And I think, you know, we shouldn't forget that the Parliament had a pretty rocky start in terms of the, its relationship with the media in mm. the early days. The so pretendy think, Parliament, yes. mm. I think, <laughs> was one of our charming phrases. <laughs> it's, it's funny, Anna, something I never quite understood, and I say this as a, you know, a convert to the cause, you know, my party having opposed evolution but then accepting the referendum. I felt the media was really tough on the new parliament and I never quite understood why. Because mm-hmm. I thought the media felt devolution is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Here will be a new seat of parliamentary activity and government right in our doorstep. And yet, the media really was brutal. Kevin, did you find that working in comms? Was it, was it a hard gig? Uh, well, yes and no. I, I did. I did feel it very strongly. And usually, when you're in the position of being the opposition, then if the executive, you know, then was the Scottish executive, were getting lumps knocked out, out of it every other day, then you think, well, that's you know, that, that's quite good, isn't it, from an opposition point of view? But I actually didn't feel very good because it seemed to me that the media, as Annabelle indicated, were almost attacking the institution, yeah. which was was surprising in the sense because an awful lot of the Scottish media had been editorially Pro. very supportive of, of devolution yeah. for you know for decades actually and when it came along the thing I reflect on was perhaps was that maybe the beginning of a kind of anti politics 
sort of attitude that has obviously grown since. And the thought I had is that I wonder if we hadn't actually got to Parliament when we did, at the end, you know, the very end of the last millennium, would we have got it actually? Because I wonder, as we have gone through this century and that kind of anti-politics mood that's grown, if we hadn't got it then and had to wait another period of time before they should come back again. Point, then, isn't it? So having to argue for, you know, a, a whole new set of politicians, all of that, the as they would say, the bureaucracy, etc. etc. I just wonder if it would have been as sellable now what as it was think? then. And I think it was maybe just yes. I think I kinda of think <clears> that we Labour used to say a Scottish Parliament is just around the corner. And a lot of us thought this is an awfully long corner. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we got around it, but I wonder if we maybe just got it in the nick of time. Yeah. What do you think? Was that was that an Overton window for a parliament that we managed to smash and grab? If that's not the most awful metaphor anyone's ever used. I, ever. That's very much media speak, <laughs> if I may say so, Anna. Media. You know, speaking as a Conservative, and I am well aware of the... Um, emotions which the Conservatives elicited in <laughs> Scotland um, before, um, during 1997 and obviously before the Parliament in 1999. Do you know, I felt after the 97 general election when the Conservatives lost all their Scottish MPs that not only was my party now in a very hard, rocky and uncomfortable place and a lonely place, I felt that there was a powerful Important sentiment in Scotland, we want a parliament. And I don't know, Kevin, I don't think that sentiment died. I mean, I think people, more than anything else, wanted to feel that they had a an ear for them and a voice piece for them sitting in Scotland. It, and I don't think that was going to, to, to dispel Kevin. I, I just, and I think in a funny way, in the 20 years, the Parliament has found its own equilibrium as an institution. Yep. So I, I, I've been thinking, because it's true when you go back and look at what was said in the first few weeks, I mean, literally in the first few weeks, apparently, from the press, it, I, I mean, it's it's horrible. And I, I finally think now... And, and the women to the, Oh, terrible. Terrible knocks. Here am I now as a mum of two 30-year-olds where I spend my life trying to keep them off of social media. However, or at least limit the hours they spend in social media. And yet, paradoxically, I think had we had the whole Twitter social media yeah. phenomenon, there would actually have been a more measured mm. assessment of the parliament. I think mm. looking back, we got caught in, it was a point where the Scottish media themselves were going under huge transition. There were circulation wars. They felt, as Kevin says, they'd been on side for the parliament for 30 years and they just, they felt that to uphold the place of the press, they had to be very challenging. Mm-hmm. So I think there were specific dimensions of where editors at that stage thought they created public opinion. And actually, one of the upsides of modern social media is that is no longer true. Mm-hmm. We would have had a much more measured assessment. I think the one other thing to, to see that when you look back, you see, think what was happening in that first week in May 1999. What was happening was you were, you know, before there had been, we used to say there was only a taxi full of Conservatives running Scotland. <laughs> yeah, beforehand. So you then move overnight to creating a parliament of 129, needing the entire standing orders bureaucracy, operation of a parliament. You need to have the public able to come in. You're squatting in somebody else's building. You're trying to create a Scottish cabinet for the first time ever with 20 ministers who all need service and all the parliamentary questions, procedures, and you are trying to get through 
15 pieces of Scottish legislation that have got backed up because they couldn't be passed through Westminster because there just wasn't space as opposed to one Scottish bill a year. And then you've got, you know, a a challenging architect saying, let's create a a world-renowned building. No wonder when all of that is going on, you are not managing the perfect debate, the perfect photo yeah. opportunity, and you have a bunch of novices in Parliament. I yeah. mean, it just looks so explicable when you look yeah, back. It's very good. true. Why yeah. is it that, yeah. you know, yeah. there were the, the expectations yes, were high. Yes. Could, Kevin, I was hoping that you might, with the benefit of hindsight, and then you, everyone else can come in on this, but... When do, can you identify when things changed and when the the political axis or the political tectonic plates shifted within the parliament? When can talk us through how how you think that how you see that happening? I think what was interesting in the early days, all of the focus was on Holyrood, not on Holyrood because Holyrood wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> in the early days, all of the focus was on the General Assembly building on the mound in Edinburgh, um, and. Again, this is, I suppose, looking at it from a, a media perspective. The media collectively seem to take the view Westminster doesn't matter anymore. It's all the Scottish Parliament, and that's where all of our focus is going to be, and that's where all of the coverage was, a lot of it not very positive, uh, but that was the way it was. Um, what was quite interesting for me, I actually went down to work at Westminster after the 2001 general election, uh, and for the you know the the, the most tragic of, of reasons what happened in 9-11 and then the long lead up to the the Gulf War in 2003 meant that it was almost for me and to some extent this was me connected to the departure of key people like Donald Dewar like Alex Salmon indeed who, who left the Scottish Parliament and remained at Westminster it seemed to me that the media collectively veered completely in another direction and decided that they thought the Scottish Parliament just wasn't as good as they thought it was going to be and that all of the really important stuff was at Westminster and that's where all the focus is going to be. And then because of, not least, as I said, 9-11 and the Iraq War, that kind of Westminster really dominated. So Holyrood sort of dominated for a couple of years, Westminster dominated thereafter and I think it took a period of time after that, and I suppose, you know, 2007 election might be one, you know, kind of change point where things came a bit more back into balance. Really, Certainly 2007 really took the focus away from Westminster again. That. But I think really interesting, Kevin. I think where we are now is is rather than saying it's all there or it's all there, it's obviously in and both places following and in more that, of a balance. you could say that the vacuum was then filled by the building of mm. the new parliament, which was meat and drink to journalists. Yes. You know, so that in a sense he said, well, if you know your analysis, Kevin, the real political action is currently at Westminster, but by golly, what a story we've got up here, yes. you know. And it was a very mm. negative story from the point of view of us as politicians, you know. Um, some of it harsh and, and some of it, frankly, unwarranted. I mean, I think you have to say, in, in, in retrospect, Donald probably, we made a mistake by saying we'll find a new home for the new parliament. I mean, it, it seemed. When you look back, of course, if you were creating a new parliament, it would have been crazy to say, we've no idea where it's going to live and we're going to leave it to the new parliamentarians to decide. Although in retrospect, that's probably the right thing. Because, of course, what happened was you change the architect, you change the design, you change the location, you change the size. Of course, it's going to cost you a lot more. But that dogged things terribly Mm -hmm. in those early years. Although, again, as I say, and maybe we'll say a little bit this then, if you look back over 20 years... Parliament has a lot more credit to its name in terms of what's been achieved than 
yeah. perhaps people sometimes think. Well, I was. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, elegant segue because um, time is marching on. So I was going to do a few quick fire questions. So that's a very good one to start with. So greatest achievements of the Parliament. What do you think? Don't all rush at once. I think it's looked Scotland in, in... I think it has helped Scotland look itself in the eye and tackle some of our demons. And by that, I mean things like, I think it's tackled knife crime, I think it's tackled smoking, I think it's tackled the alcohol issue, I think it's looked at whether we are socially liberal as a country on all of these things. Violence against women, there are so many issues across all parties where we've looked ourselves now and said, there are some things about Scotland that can be better, and I don't think that would have happened without the Parliament being there. Annabelle? I carried out an exercise. I spoke at the International Women's Day Convention right. through in Edinburgh, Wendy, yes. in the Scottish Parliament this year, and it was naturally focusing on 20 years of the Scottish Parliament. So I got out all the acts that the Scottish Parliament has passed, Fantastic. and I printed them off, and I sellotaped them together, and I held this thing up, and yes. it literally is about six to seven feet yes. in length. And I said, that is the tangible yes. evidence of what the Parliament's yes. been doing. And what I did go through, Wendy, was I looked particularly at the legislation that affected families, yes. women, trying to improve the situation in relation to domestic abuse, yes. domestic yes. violence. Yes. And there's a queen of legislation, a lot of legislation. And I think one of the big pluses of the Parliament, you talked, Anna, about localness, accessibility, mm-hmm. and, and you did mm-hmm. too, Wendy, and it is very accessible on all levels, to public, you know, to, to politicians, to visitors, to witnesses, to, to children, school to children, school. yes. schools visit. Mm-hmm. So huge success in that respect. It embeds our distinctively different Scottish traditions, whether that is how we deal with education, our legal system. Yes. What was obvious to me from this enormous um, list. Um, list of legislation was that, of course... In a sense, the Parliament has embedded our different Scottish legal system. It's, it has to reflect our, our, our distinctive Scottish law, and it's done that. That's powerful. But what I felt was very significant was that um, on this huge list of stuff, you know, there were things being repealed. So, in other words... There's a learning process, yeah. Anna. There has to be an awareness. We did that for the best of intentions at the time, but you know what? I don't think it's working, yeah. so mm-hmm. let's let's revisit it. What about you, Kevin? Greatest achievements? I think, I mean, you could always point to individual, uh, you know, legislation, like, you know, obviously the smoking ban, the free personal care, and, and I think it's probably fair to say that the Parliament has made the biggest impact in social policy areas, which is good. Um, but I think in overall terms... You'd probably look at. I think the, I think before the Scottish Parliament existed, when we had the old Scottish office system from you know the nineteenth century all the way through, I think Scotland's approach to government was or governance was essentially a lobbying attitude. You know, we had a lobbying view of we want this, we want that, we want to maximise resources. Therefore, we will be geared up to lobby, and that's mm-hmm. basically what mm-hmm. the Scottish Office was. It was a large kind of lobbying mm-hmm. department of of Whitehall, and I think what's happened over the last twenty years is we've we've replaced that with a governing culture, mm-hmm. and we're passing all these different uh, areas of policy and legislation. We can have a debate about what that government should be who it should be, mm-hmm. what it should be doing mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. But I think we've got to a much more healthier, if you like, positive situation as opposed to a kind of reactive negative one where we're lobbying things we maybe don't like to actually doing things democratically, inclusively, in consultation, 
with every element of Scottish society, not least the school kids who are there every week at First Minister's Questions, seeing it. I mean, when I used to come to Edinburgh at school, it was to go to the zoo or something. But I think fundamentally, we Some are a governing nation. Some might there's not a great Well, <laughs> I may very well say that. But that's I, the I for the panda joke, or that's out of date now. What about missed opportunities, Kevin? It's not... It's, it, it's, I suspect we've talked a bit about the social policy innovation, which is really good and really important, it's probably fair to say that the Parliament has not got to grips to the same extent with the economic challenges, you know, mm-hmm. the long-term challenges mm-hmm. that we that we face as a country. Dem, you know, our demographic situation, artificial intelligence, robotics, you know, these things mm-hmm. that are coming very fast down the track. Um, you may say that its ability to do so is constrained, and that's true. I think where it has had the ability to... to, to to you know, face up to the challenges of the future, like climate change, which we talked about before, it has done so. It is doing, I think, all it, or you know, not all it can, but an awful lot of what it can to to meet that challenge. But I suspect in the in the the, the economic policy space, that's where the, the, there's a sense, whether rightly or wrongly, and you might say, from my perspective, well, what can it do with limited powers? But rightly or wrongly, I think a perception that yes, while it's done very well in areas of social policy, it's not maybe lived up to the the hopes of having a transformed Scottish economy that's equipped for the future. That's that's a big work in progress. I I think that's an important observation by Kevin. And following on two aspects of it, Kevin, your demography point and and also um, what's developed, maybe what hasn't developed. You know, I read recently... Wendy, that we still have an issue with STEM subjects. We're not going to have kids mm-hmm. studying STEM subjects. We possibly mm. have a lack of teachers in these subjects. Yeah. You know, Wendy, you and I, 12, 15 years ago, can remember that That's being right. identified yes. as an issue. Mm-hmm. And it's a serious issue. Yes. And I noticed last year the SQA said that there'd been a cl- decline in the pupils studying, let's see, you know, some of the modern languages, languages. Yes. And, um, and some of the social sciences like history and geography. Massive numbers of youngsters studying politics. I mean, I may be terribly <laughs> old-fashioned, but I think you'll be a far better politician if, you, old do, age, if yes. you do a job, <laughs> yes, first absolutely. of all, before you veer off into uh, politics. Absolutely. So all I'm saying is, following in Kevin's point, there are things that all these years later are still a problem. And it's not yes. a part of a political point. You know, it's yes. just saying the Parliament's there, Kevin's right, it's there now to govern and take decisions, and you don't seem to be cracking that point. Yeah. Wendy, missed opportunities quickly. So I, I agree with what uh, colleagues have said about on the economy, on climate change, um, on STEM and education. I think the one thing I would add is Donald always used to talk about the Parliament being about his phrase was writing the social arithmetic and by, in Scotland. And by that he meant that life chances were more equal, social mobility. And the truth is that the 20 years the Parliament has been around have coincided with the period of seeing stagnation in social mobility all over the Western world. And and that remains a central challenge for the Parliament to Mm. to keep thinking about in the next 20 years. Because Parliaments are always about hopes for the future and making society better. And if there wasn't a, a great long list of things still to do, it wouldn't be doing its job. So to round up, a horrible question. I'll put my hands up and admit that. Uh, best first minister, and who you think will be first minister in twenty years' time? So, lovely question. Who's going first? Kevin. Best first minister. Um, it is a difficult one. I mean, I think, in fairness, they've all 
been, I think they've all made, you know, big contributions. I think it would be invidious to sort of pick out one or the other. I mean, obviously a huge fan of, you know, the two SNP first ministers, but I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, minimise the contribution of the other first ministers, well, the Labour first ministers. And indeed, let's not forget that there was, uh, for very sad reasons, we, we have had a Lib Dem first minister formally when Jim Wallace had to step in. When Donald Dewar was ill, I think he was actually, you know, formally sworn in as such. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's that, the point being that it's been twenty years of great difference. You know, we've had different kinds of government. We had, you know, eight years of coalition. We had minority government. We had majority government. Minority government again. So, it's it's hard to compare and contrast because they've all been of the situation that they found themselves in at the time. You know, running the first coalition in Scotland. Uh, for example, between Donald Dewar and Jim Wallace running the first minority government uh, of, of of Alex Salmond and then a majority government. I think probably rather than who was the best first minister, I I've got, I feel myself that I think the best parliament was the 2007 to 11 one. I think the minority government situation worked very well, uh, both from a, a, the point of view of the administration and actually, I think from the wider point of view of the, the parliament and opposition parties having a, a meaningful input, I think the, the culture was, was quite good whilst we were you know, going through some really, really contentious stuff. Nonetheless, I think the, the, kind of, the mood was good, actually. It didn't seem to be quite... Ironically, for a, a parliament of all minorities and minority government, the mood seemed to be less fractious than I think it had been before and than it is now. So I would choose, rather than answer your question... Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks yeah. for acknowledging. <laughs> thanks for owning up to that. That would be my favourite For someone part. who was never an elected politician, <laughs> politician's that, answer, that, well, that was a masterclass. Yeah. That would be my favourite parliament. 2039, who's first minister? Oh, one of the school kids who has been <laughs> who to visit. Exactly, yeah, no idea. Nice. Okay, Wendy. Okay, no idea for that, question two. No idea question. Question on one. The first one, I, 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 I'm going to give a politician answer, but actually, I, I agree with Kevin. The, the interesting thing, it is the toughest job in the world to lead a country. There is no doubt, you know, and that's true for first minister. It's an incredibly hard job. I think rightly when you're looking back over twenty years, they have all brought something of their own passion. There's no doubt in Alex Salmond's case that passion was around renewable energy. He'd been an energy economist before. Jack had taught in Scottish schools. He knew about sectarianism being our secret shame and he did something mm-hmm. about it. You know, Jim Wallace, although they're incredibly briefly, was the quintessential Scottish lawyer who just understood, <laughs> as Annabelle said, the need for Scottish law to be upheld. Nicola, I think genuinely cares about women. There's no doubt about that, that she's committed to the cause of, of, of women. And, and Henry cared about personal care. So whilst it is an incredibly tough job, the privilege of the highest office is that you can bring your stamp to bear about something that, that is close to your heart yeah. and, and you have passion for. Annabelle? Well, I don't think your question, your first question, is answerable, Anna, because it seems to me that you can only look at first ministers in terms of their political yes. persona. You know, if you're going to launch into party politics, yes. you know, I don't agree with what the Labour Party wanted to do. I don't agree with what the SNP Party... I don't think that actually deals with the significance of the persona of whoever Absolutely. is first minister. And I have to say, and very much with Kevin and with Wendy, it seems to me that in their different ways, yes. representing their different yes. parties, they have all, without exception, brought to the office... The passion, the energy, the commitment, and I think the um, the sense of 
of conscience in terms of this is a big office in Scotland and they wanted to do their best in that office. And, you know, I would praise them for wanting to do that. Um, as to who will be the next First Minister, because I can't at the moment, like um, Kevin and Wendy, talk about uh, my party's previous uh, successes in that role. But I have to say that looking at my friend Ruth Davidson, she <laughs> oh, think it's looking good? in charge of her 31 NSPs, you know, my... I am excited about the future. It, you know, it may be blue. Talking baby Finn and a baby Slim. Very on could brand. Be could be Finn in 2020. Do you think? Is that who we're backing, baby well, Finn? Who knows? Who knows? Guys, thank you all um, so much for coming along today. That's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.